Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage, or in these troubled times, over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. So this month, our show is Hot and Throbbing, which has been on the website for a while now, and it's going to be throughout the season. Then to that end, we decided to have yet another Satellite Magazine just to find more interesting things to talk about, and we feel like we have done a pretty good job at that because we have three exciting guests. To that end, we present you um, from Raphael House, Prevention Education Specialist Samantha Cohen. If you're not familiar with the work of Raphael House, go to raphaelhouse.com, and on there homepage, it will tell you that for more than 40 years, Raphael House of Portland has helped domestic violence survivors and their families find safety, hope, and independence. And they believe that everyone deserves to live a life free from violence. And, you know, amen to that. Um, we will also be talking to gifted visual artist Ant Proctor and to the amazing Jamie M. Ray, who directed Hot and Throbbing. And with no further ado, welcome to Satellite. Uh, greetings, Earthlings. I am here with Samantha Cohen. Hi. Samantha comes to us from Raphael House. And Samantha, can you give us your title there again? Absolutely. I am a prevention education specialist on our prevention education team. Fantastic. And um, I think I told you that the play around which this discussion is happening uh, is a play by called uh, Hot and Throbbing by Paula Vogel that came out in the early 90s. Um, and it's a really, uh, super interesting play in that she finds, she manages to find humor in this really dark subject. Um, but when it turns, it turns hard, you know, and, uh, you know, and when we first read it again, I was like, you know, man, um, you know, this play feels like it was, you know, you know, it was written a lifetime ago and, uh, it feels like there's like we know so much more about domestic violence, its its causes and and effects, and it feels like as a country, um, you know, we know that this be- the kind of behavior is wrong, and and we try to provide resources and things should be better. But then I was like, but you know, that is a total assumption on my part, and I don't know actually know if that's true or not. So, can you tell me a little bit if it's True or not? Well, I think you're speaking to the truth of a variety of things, right? Like we still unfortunately see that domestic violence is still very much so an issue that impacts so many people. I mean, it does disproportionately, there we go, words. (laughs) It does disproportionately impact women. But something that we know to be really true about domestic violence is that some studies suspect up to one in 10 men experience some form of domestic violence in their lifetime. And we also recognize that transgender folks and non-binary folks are disproportionately impacted by it as well. 
What I do think has changed, though, is kind of as you were saying, we're so much more cognizant of the effects of domestic violence in our everyday lives. And I do see some really positive changes going on in our world. I mean, here in the Portland metro area, I see that community members are standing up all across the board, recognizing that we all have a role to play in preventing domestic violence, whether that's through education, advocacy or other forms of community support. And, you know, one of the things that we know, especially within, I want to say, the last 10, 20 years is we're recognizing just how important prevention is. Because when we think about domestic violence as an issue, I kind of like to think of it as a river, right? And if you're thinking about a river and how to prevent pollution in a river, you ideally want to go up the stream so that the pollution doesn't impact the wildlife and the ecosystem. I kind of think of addressing domestic violence in the same way. Wow. Great. Um, What do you think today is the most important thing for someone living under these conditions to know? It is not your fault. It is not your fault. And it is not your fault. And nobody deserves to be hurt by someone they loved and trusted. And no matter your age, your gender, your ability, your race, your sexual orientation, your socioeconomic class, you are deserving of care. Help is out there and that we all deserve to live lives free of violence. Right on. So uh, I feel like that is a message for if uh, anybody out there knows somebody else who's not listening to this podcast, uh, who's living under these conditions, that's the message to pass along to them. Um, How do, and I guess that's a good segue, how do women get help uh, if they need it, if they find themselves in this situation? Absolutely. And I think that's a great question. And before I share some of the resources that my agency provides, as well as what's out there in the community, I do want to bring up that when we're talking about domestic violence as an issue, we're really, really intentional about using the word survivor to represent people that are impacted by domestic violence. Because even though we do know, again, that this is something that really does disproportionately impact women, we recognize that survivorship and folks that navigate experiencing domestic violence come from a wide range of identities and experiences. And we really want to honor that because we do know that if we focus on one group, we are leaving out groups of people that do need that care and do need that support. Um, In terms of getting folks connected to support and services, there's a few ways that can look like, whether that's connecting with Call to Safety, which is Portland's 24-7 domestic violence crisis hotline, or connecting with us directly here at Raphael House. Um, And what's great about connecting with those services is they can connect you with a safe place to stay, whether that's our crisis shelter or another crisis shelter available in the area, getting you a hotel voucher if you need a safe place to stay the night, whether you need legal advocacy, other forms of advocacy, there's help out there and we can get folks connected. Fantastic. Um, uh, What are some of the prevalent dangerous myths that still persist? Oh, gosh, there's so many. But I think one that I hear a lot when I'm going well, in the before times when I would chat with students in classrooms, we would talk about these myths. And I think one I hear a lot is, why don't they just don't leave? Why don't they leave? If it's so dangerous, so bad, so scary, why don't they just leave? And I think this is actually something that the play did a really good job of addressing 
um, is that it's not always easy for a survivor to leave their abuser. And there's many reasons why, you know, maybe they share children or pets together. Maybe the survivor is undocumented and their abuser is threatening to report them to the authorities. Maybe their abuser has full complete control over their banking info, whether or not they have access to an income, whether or not they have access to a car or can safely leave the house. And unfortunately, something else that we know to be really true in the domestic violence advocacy field is the most dangerous time in an abusive relationship is when the survivor leaves their abuser. That is when we tend to see violence escalate the most. And, you know, Mm. with that, too, another myth that I see just be so disturbingly prevalent is that the survivor must have done something to provoke the abuse. And what we know is it's never on the survivor. The abuser makes a conscious choice to hurt and control their partner. It's a conscious choice. And it is never the survivor's fault that they are experiencing abuse from somebody that they love. And. I guess the last myth that I tend to see come up quite a bit, and especially in representation, like, you know, we're talking about media and we're talking about how domestic violence shows up and how it's portrayed. Something that I tend to see quite a bit is this misconception that abusers are like 100 percent of the time always abusing their partners. And what we know about abusive relationships is that they tend to follow what we call a cycle of violence. And there's four stages in this cycle. The first being the calm stage where, you know, an abusive relationship doesn't always start off scary. I mean, something that I share with students quite a bit is if you're on a first date with someone and they're immediately cussing you out and calling you names and, you know, I'm gesturing in a violent and scary way, you probably don't feel safe going on a date with that person again. But We know that abusive relationships often start off very sweet, very loving. Maybe they're super lavish with gifts, food, security, whether that be financial, economic or otherwise emotional security. We know that it tends to start off good. But as time goes on, we move into the second stage where we see tension building and tension building starts to happen when the abuser begins exerting that power and control, sometimes in more subtle ways, but in ways that are definitely, you know, raising some flags for the survivor. And the survivor feels like they have to walk on eggshells to appease their abuser. And then and then after all that tension builds and builds and builds, it breaks with what we call the incident stage. And an incident can look like physical violence, but it can also look like instances of emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. Or really, when we think of an incident, it's any act that instills fear into the survivor. Hmm. And it's. Really interesting because when I often talk to youth, you know, the most visible examples that come up are these acts of physical violence. But we often forget just how insidious and harmful other forms of abuse and violence can really be in these relationships. And the other thing with incidents, too, is they can be as short as a few minutes or they can last as long as a few days. And what happens after those, and this is what's always really interesting to me, and I think we saw a little bit of this in the play, too, where the characters were sitting and talking after Charlene got a restraining order against Clyde, is that we tend to see this reconciliation stage. Now, some folks have called this the honeymoon stage, but we kind of recognize that that doesn't really address what we're seeing, right? Because what we tend to see with this reconciliation stage is an abuser tries to make amends in some ways, but they're never saying sorry for the harm that they did. They shift the blame, they minimize their actions, and they try to pretend like the whole thing never happened. And in this reconciliation stage, again, they might be really lavish with their gifts. They might be love bombing or doting on their partner like no other 
But then it goes in that stage of calm and the cycle repeats and repeats. And it may take months for the cycle to go through in a relationship. It may take years. Oftentimes, the longer an abusive relationship goes, the more frequency at which a couple goes through this cycle. Wow. Wow. Um, great information there, yeah. Samantha. Um, we're in the age of quarantine and COVID. Yeah. Uh, how has that changed things for um, in this field, this Ooh, it's changed in a lot of ways. And one of the things that unfortunately we know to be true about COVID and quarantine is it's made it harder for survivors to get out of abusive situations. And this is true across the board, whether someone's experiencing domestic violence or for children witnessing domestic violence and or experiencing child abuse at home. We know it's harder to get out of those situations now more than ever. Disturbingly enough, something that we've heard quite a bit is survivors coming to us and saying, my abuser infected me with COVID. I don't know if I have anywhere to go because we're seeing that, unfortunately, abusive partners are leveraging this terrible pandemic that we're all experiencing as another way of exerting that control. But something else that I feel is really important to say is one thing that COVID-19 has not changed, though, is our dedication to supporting survivors by any means. We've been able to get pretty creative with how we provide that care and support, whether that's through socially distant essential drop-offs or like groceries and other goods, virtual support groups for other survivors to work through that trauma and gain that support and empowerment, whether that's virtual advocacy, just checking in and seeing how folks are doing, or welcoming families and single folks into our emergency shelter space. We firmly believe in providing advocacy and care no matter the circumstance. Right on. Well, that is uh, a great note, to, I think, to end on. Um, <laughs> for a minute there, I was like, is there going to be any hope? You know, um, but you know what? And I, I don't mean yeah. to make light. It's a, yeah. you know, it's a hard, dangerous subject, you know, as it goes on for a long, it's been going on for a long time. Absolutely. Um, uh, and thanks for all the information that you gave us uh, in a short amount of time. Um, and, and thanks for giving us um, an opportunity to like help, you know, and spread the word. It's my joy. And, you know, uh, going back on, I didn't feel that you were making light at all. I mean, as we're talking about these issues, if we don't talk about it, it stays in the dark. It stays in the dark. And if we don't bring awareness, not just to the scary side, but also the power that comes through with survivors putting their stories into words with getting folks connected with care, we can do our part to end domestic violence. And I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. Well, I feel like it is a goal worth reaching for. That is for sure. Uh, same here. <laughs> All right. Thank you. That was Samantha Cohen from the Raphael House. Uh, so thank you so much for your information. It's my joy. Thanks for having me. Right on. And we'll be right back with Aunt Proctor. Domestic violence is a public health crisis of epidemic proportions. One in three women and one in seven men will experience abuse. At Raphael House of Portland, we are working to change that. Raphael House has offered emergency shelter and a safe haven for families fleeing violence for over 40 years. Our mission is to help survivors build the safe, independent lives they deserve. And we're here every step of the way, for as long as families need. Each year, we serve more than 400 survivors, half of whom are children. Now they're growing up in safe, violence-free homes. But we don't only respond to domestic violence. 
We want to stop it from ever happening. That is why prevention is a part of everything we do. We help families, plus thousands of teens and local schools, learn about consent and equitable relationships, so that one day, no one will need our services. If you or a loved one needs to talk to an advocate, you are not alone. Our confidential hotline is available 24-7 at 503-222-6222. Visit us at www.raphaelhouse.com to learn more, access resources, get involved, or make a donation. Because no one deserves to be hurt by someone they love. And together, we can build a future without domestic violence. And we're back with Aunt Proctor. Aunt, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Face-to-face, uh, -face, sort of. Yeah. Is. <laughs> so, uh, first off, I thought you I really loved your drawings. Well, thank you. The, the ones that I saw. So, um, tell me about your art and what it is that you do just as Aunt out in the world. Yeah, well, I'm a story artist, and uh, it's, a vague per uh, it's a vague term kind of on purpose because story artists cover a lot of ground in pre-production for a lot of different things. There's, um, there's character design, backgrounds, props, stuff like that. Um, anything that contributes to a larger story that's being told, whether that's a video game or a TV series, or in this case, like an audio production. It's all of that. Right on, right on. Um, I didn't realize that. I figured you were just a visual artist. Yeah, it is. Um, it is visual, but uh, it isn't just static. Like um, I do a lot of animatics where it's motion graphics, um, and the end production, of course, is usually integrated into some sort of larger project at hand. So, yeah, just a puzzle piece. Are you, right, right. Are you uh, so? Are you usually working on several different projects at once, or? Yeah, I'm freelance right now, so I've got a couple different things going depending on what people are looking for. Fantastic. So how did you get involved with Profile Theater? Well, I was actually a student of Bobby Brewer-Wallen, who has done some amazing work for this season, of course. Um, he was teaching a costume design course, which was just sort of a one-off interest for me at the time. But um, he introduced me to the process that costume designers undertake um, when they research their material and the reference work that follows that. So it was really an invaluable experience to me. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then, of course, I have Bobby to thank for uh, remembering me from back then and bringing up my name uh, when you guys were looking for an artist. Great. So and then when the when the call came to you like when they asked when when, the, when they when josh or jamie was was like you know hey we want you to come work for us what is it that they asked you to do um i think the initial pitch was comic style illustrations they left it purposely vague because this is a strange little niche for an illustrator or a story artist to fall into illustrating for like a stage production so we weren't sure initially what we were looking for, or they weren't at least, and we sort of figured out um, how many pictures would be necessary, what sort of things they were looking for. Is that process, essentially. Yeah. What did you think of the play when you read it? Oh my goodness. I definitely enjoyed it. Um, it's a very, 
it's very shocking. It's very shocking. Um, it's mm-hmm. very, it's very powerful and strong. And I could tell that there were certain visuals that you're meant to see on stage that are absolutely integral to the play itself. Um, especially with the lighting and the different stage directions. Was there any uh, aspect of it that you found particularly challenging or inspiring, I guess? Yeah, the play itself is a difficult sort of thing to approach because um, it's writing a double line of like very, very shocking graphic material. It's sort of uh, pulpy and sexy on purpose, but um, also there are very, very real things at hand throughout the play and its materials that you have to be sensitive about. There are sensitive topics that come up, of course. so yeah, uh, finding a way to blend reality and fantasy the way that those are done uh, with stage directions in the play was something that I had been thinking about from approaching it from a an artistic perspective, obviously. Did, uh, where did you get your visuals for the, the, the characters? Did you use the faces of the actors? What did you do? Yeah, actually... Um, I did a bit of a dive finding what sources I could go to for illustrations of characters of color, especially because that's what would suit this project. Um, I did take a look at the headshots, of course, um, but I also spent a lot of time uh, reading through comics, um, read through a lot of Bitch Planet, which is a feminist dystopian comic by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Valentin Delandre, which has some really great character design uh, in a comic style that I was able to take a lot of cues from. So that was nice. Had you done any kind of like comic book illustration yourself? Yeah, in general, um, I steer clear of panels. I am more suited to um, animation as it were, but um I do read a lot of comics myself, so it was fun to sort of get into that trope of the panels and what you can do with them to um, break the fourth wall, as it were. Great, great. And you have, you have a really clean line, I thought. Um, you, you do a lot with a little bit. Thank you. you action know, lines. Is, is... Say it again. Action lines, yeah. Uh, explain more. Um. Well, you can get a lot of action across really quickly with a cartoon style, especially a comic book style. Um, just because things stay loose, things stay quick, you're not going to spend a lot of time on any specific drawing. So it's really what people are going to project upon a drawing that matters instead of how detailed the actual line work is, in my experience. Great, because you... Uh, um uh, just convey a lot, um, and, and it actually really adds something to the listening experience. I think, you know, and I, and I thought that was really uh, adeptly done. Mm-hmm. And um, are you working on a? Because like, because you had one set of drawings you did when Hot and Throbbing first came out, and you're working on something else now, correct? I am. Yeah, it's um, essentially an animated version using the illustrations that I'd already made. Um, spanning the entire duration of the play. So there's a lot of fun camera movements and cuts, and I freeze a lot of the elements that I already had, and it's very exciting. I hope that uh, viewers enjoy it. 
Are you animating it yourself? I am, yes. Oh, sweet. Sweet. Have you done that kind of thing before? I have, yeah. I do it mostly as a hobby, but um, making animatics is something that I really do enjoy. Oh, man. Because, you know, I don't know if you know this about me. I'm a big comic book fan as well. Yeah. Um, uh, so it sounds like they used to have the, in the 1960s, they had these old, like, Marvel Comics cartoons that were essentially just pictures of, like, the, like they had the pictures from the comics, and then they would animate them and turn them sideways to, like, to, is that kind of what you're doing? Yeah, I would say it's something similar, definitely. I've also seen those. They're very cool. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, how many drawings are you going to be using? Essentially, I have different bits and pieces isolated from the images that I've already made that I reuse and sneak in in different ways. So it's actually very exciting how much use you can get out of a single image. Great. So uh, you're having a good time working on this project then? I am, definitely. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, you got anything coming up? Um, nothing in, from a consumer perspective, not really. Gotcha. I, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Um, so tell me, uh, the style of drawings that you have, uh, the, uh, the style of work that you're doing for profile when hot and throbbing, um, what would you call that? Cause it, cause it's like, it seems like it's different than storyboards and like different than comics and do you have a, a name for the art that you do? Gosh, it's a good question. Cause, um, definitely it was influenced by comic art, but then as someone who's used to doing storyboards, it was, I approached it from that direction. Cause usually in comic books you have like the roughs, which is in pencil and then the inks over the top and you get a very crisp, right. pristine sort of uh, end product. But storyboards are very fast and loose. And I think that adding that approach uh, is what transformed it to the strange amalgamation that it's become. Mm -hmm. Do you uh, still have to ink it though? I ink digitally. Um, oh, right. Yes. Right, I'm a digital artist, so it's all done through the computer. Um, I have a really nice uh, graphic pen that I got to use and abuse quite often throughout this process. So that was nice. Wow. Um, did you start out as a pencil and ink drawer and then move to computer graphics? Have you, have you already worked? Have you always worked in computer graphics? I think everyone does start with pencil, um, <laughs> at least at one point in their lives. Um, I've been drawing digitally for, I want to say, about eight years now. Um, right, that's your go-to now. Yeah, that is my go-to. I think that mm -hmm. it's easy and it's nice and it's what people are looking for. And uh, coloring is a lot more facile and varied when you're doing it on a computer, yeah? For sure. It's versatile. You can make a lot of quick edits with uh, not very much time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, well, great, Ant. You've been terrific. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time and your energy. Thanks so much for having me. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back with Jamie M. Ray. Hot and throbbing. There are two worlds in this story. Reality constructed as we know it. 
and a world that sometimes resembles the real as we fantasize about it. Cut to interior night voiceover. She was hot. She was raw. But she was in control. Control of her body. Control of her thoughts. Control of him. And she she would would make make him wait. Make make him beg. beg. Sounds too male bashing. Make him ask? Fuck it. Make him beg. Make them both beg. Mom! Where's your eyeliner? On the top shelf next to the Ben Gay. Hot and Throbbing by Paula Vogel, directed by Jamie M. Ray, is available for streaming November 4th, 2020 to June 20th, 2021 to members and non-members at Profile Theater On Air. Learn more and listen at ProfileTheater.org. And we are back with Jamie M. Ray. Okay, folks, I am here with the director of Hot and Throbbing, Jamie M. Ray. Now, full disclosure, uh, for those who might not live in the Portland area, uh, Jamie and I are romantic partners. We live together. Um, And for some reason, I feel like this is making her more nervous rather than less. So... (laughs) (laughs) So, So that was my effort to help her relax. Okay, so now I'm going to talk to you just as the director. <laughs> okay, um, no big deal. You're among friends, remember. Great. So, uh, Hot and Throbbing by Paul Vogel. It was written 30-ish years ago. What is it that you think that this play still has to say to audiences in 2021? You know, the greatest stories uh, have something universal in them that are always true because they're speaking to the truth of humanity. And uh, and then they have something really specific that makes them unique and stand out in the particular voice, particular story that they are telling. And uh, what I love about this piece is that it has both. You know, there are super dated references in it, like to the kind of dial-up internet she has. And <laughs> she has a landline phone. You remember those? Some of you young people in the audience don't even know what that is, but phones used to be connected by a curly cord. <laughs> and you plug them into the wall and you couldn't go very far away. <laughs> and, um, uh, and some things like that. Um which are specific to the time that it's in. But the story is really about um, a woman trying to find her place in the world, to find her autonomy, to define herself as a person. And what does she have to contribute? What does she think? What are her own opinions? What does she want to say? Um, And that universal human experience of self-definition, um, So that she's not only a mother, which is important to her and that matters to her. She's not only a romantic partner, which is important to her and that matters to her. But she's also her own separate entity. Um, And that is a universal story. Um, There's also the larger overarching social themes of 
sexuality and women's sexuality in particular and whether uh, how much that is policed and how much is permissible and who has the right to um, to make those decisions over what should be policed and what should be permissible. Um, and it also talks about domestic violence, which is unfortunately a place where we very much still need to grow. So, you know, stories highlight a universal human experience that is always and forever, that trying to define our autonomous selves. And then they highlight the places where we as a community, as a global community, need to uh, be better for ourselves and each other. Sure. And domestic violence is unfortunately still one of those things. It is still the leading cause of death among women. I'm going to say that again. It is still domestic violence is the leading cause of death among women. More than cancer, more than car accidents, more than a heart disease, you know, et cetera. Um, and it's still something that we don't talk about. We don't have good... Um, that is a hardcore stat. Right? We don't have good language around... Um, we don't have, you know, our laws, we don't have good laws to protect. Like in order to get a restraining order, you have to provide an address for where the, from for, so that the person has to stay um, 100 feet or something, 300 feet or a thousand yards or whatever it is um, from the address that you gave. But that means that for people who have escaped to domestic violence situations, they have to tell the person looking for them where they are. And there is no one who can sit 24 hours a day, seven days a week outside of that address to make sure that nobody comes. And sure enough, you know, in this particular piece, even though she has a restraining order, there's no one there to enforce it. And so her husband literally breaks down the door. So um, that is still a place, you know, with COVID, unfortunately, um, Domestic violence statistics within the first month, by April of 2020, within the first month, every single place on the planet, literally, that measures um, reports of domestic violence went up in that first month. They went up between 3% and 1,700% everywhere on the planet Jeez, was the range of statistics that I found. Um, and so... Uh, so it's clearly that's clearly still very much a today issue and one that we wish would no longer be true. I'm sure when Paula wrote it, she hoped that we would no longer be having this kind of problem. But normalizing the conversation about it, talking about it, having it not be just behind closed doors or not our business because it happens at home, um, you know, recognizing it for the the actual threat uh, that it is, is a significant piece of what art can help do. And then you have the sexuality part and finding um, how do we as people, how do women in particular and we as people in general find healthy, celebratory, expansive ways of expressing our sexuality, of enjoying our sexuality um, rather than policing our sexuality. This piece was written. Uh, it's Paula's response to the NEA4, which is the case that brings forth the famous quote of Antonin Scalia's, um, I can't define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. Uh, and that he is specifically in that he is specifically talking about art and not the obscenity of violence or sex trafficking or child molestation. He's specifically talking about making art and he's specifically talking about sex and that we have stronger 
moral judgments around what a woman wears, how she talks, whether or not we have consensual sex on our television screens than we have around horrendous, torturous, gory, cruel, malicious, sadistic violence. That's fine. Children can watch that all over the place. Adults can watch that all over the place. You know, you think about, you know, we are what we feed ourselves. And our culture is <laughs> fine feeding ourselves copious amounts of violence. Um, but any kind of positive, self-empowered, consensual-based sexuality, let alone having a fantasy related to that sexuality, is... A huge no-no, scary taboo. Definitely can't talk about that. You're a bad person for thinking it. Um, and so Paula is holding up in the piece, you know, the question of what actually is obscenity. You know, is it this really beautiful, sexy voice or is it this really violent man? Um, and I can take gender out of that. Like just the violence of human against human there. Um which is more obscene? Which do we actually need to look at and really talk about as a community? Um, right. Um, and you've kind of you, you've kind of like started to head in this direction because I wanted to ask you. Uh, it seems like it was important to you to um, make this an interracial cast, which is, of course, probably was a white writer. It was probably uh, not what she had in mind when she was, you know, sitting at the typewriter back in those days and writing this down. Um, why was that important to you for this production? I feel like, you know, um, Lin-Manuel Miranda is famous for saying about uh, Hamilton that he wrote about he wrote about America then with America now. Um and I feel like Paula Vogel had the foresight to not specify. Her script in no way specifies who is supposed to be what. And our culture in general has a white body supremacy where that's just the normalization. It's it's everything is diverse from um, Caucasian skin. And this is not an issue that is singularly applicable to Caucasian skin. And our planet has a global majority of non-Caucasian skin. And so I really feel like art in general, um, at its best, is reflective of the uh, breadth and depth of humanity. And so anytime you are doing a piece that is um, strictly homogenous, you are missing the opportunity of the richness hmm. of uh, point of view and opinion and experience. I love doing theater because I love being around the table with a whole group of bright, creative, complicated, passionate, opinionated people. And uh, I am not interested in people who all think like me. I don't, I, I already think like me. I need the people who are thinking differently than me, who have a different experience of the world, who have a different sense of what it means to be a woman, who have a different, uh, different things that they bump up against. And um, and that's what makes uh, a story rich and complex. And we are rich, complicated people. Great. When done live, this is a strikingly visual play with levels and, and the character voiceover is dressed in lingerie right. and like the voice is wearing like a fedora and a trench right. coat at one point. Yeah. Um, how do you adjust the vocabulary of that play for an audio production? 
So one of the things that's most interesting to me as a director, I always think it's the most fun when you're sitting down with a with a script and you're deciding what is the story that I want to tell at this moment in my life with this play, because any story has um, any well written story has all kinds of threads running through it that you can. And so it's always the responsibility and joy uh, and task of the artist to say, what thread do I want to pull out and follow? What am I going to highlight? And that's why it's interesting to watch um, any given play multiple times. You know, it's why it's interesting to repeat stories and why we tell them over and over again and share them with each other because we bring something new to them. We have new live, lived experience. And so we read something different in them. You know, how many times do you hear uh, an author be surprised by feedback when someone read their story and is like, oh my God. And when you did this thing, it just, it, I, I couldn't believe you tied all these things together. And the author is like, I didn't even think of that, <laughs> you know, but it's there in the story. And um, so any given director, we get to sit down and pull out what is the thing we're most excited to follow. And, um, and in this piece, that is both a larger philosophical question. It's also a very technical question. And in this case, part of that storytelling is that we get to be really oral. So what is the oral version? What is the listening landscape version of uh, of a story that is often told quite visually, where a lot of the, the plot and atmosphere is told visually? And so we approached it from a variety of levels. Um, one was sound, most obvious. There's a lot of places where I would have used silence in the play, where there's, there's a lot of tension in the play, and that kind of hushed, like holding your breath, kind of silence that on an audio recording makes people wonder if something cut out or or something's missing. Um, whereas in person, we would just be holding our breath together. And so I worked with our sound design team, had two composers and... Um, and an effects designer, three amazing women who worked with us on creating that lush landscape and that tension. So we said, normally we would go silent. So we went the literally the other direction. Um, in places where we needed more tension, we were like, we're gonna add more sound instead of taking things away, we're gonna add things there. And what does that mean? How do we create that same suspension held, making your heart start to beat faster. Sometimes we literally used a heartbeat and made it beat faster. You know, what What are we doing to help you breathe heavier in the way that you would um, if we were all together in the room holding our breath? So, uh, so that was a really delightful collaboration there. And then with the actors, we focused a lot because we get so much visually, even before you get to things like costume and blocking where someone is on a stage and in, in relationship to each other. Um, but just in their physical character body and their facial expressions. And that tells us so much about what's going on with them. So it was uh, a really wonderful collaboration with the actors to figure out how to put that teenager slump into their voice. Right. So how can you hear in, instead of what might normally be like a really flat tone delivered and you're getting all the attitude from their body. Now we need to put the attitude in their voice mm -hmm. instead. Um, when we're considering different kinds of sexuality, you know, what is sexy? What sounds when the words are the same, which is one of the things I love. There's a lot of echoes that Paula has in the script where the same words are repeated in different contexts. So the same words in one scene, which sound really sexy, are really dangerous in a later scene where the same 
um, the same, even the same scene played, some of the same topic or the same series of actions is taken in one scene is part of this consensual fantasy where the woman is inviting the relationship she wants. And then later is where the um, man is controlling and abusing and ultimately killing her you know, literally the same words. And so discovering how do we get really playful with the voice so that you know, because we can hear there's so much that we, uh, there's so much that we take in through our ears that that our brain interprets and, um, and we just don't notice as consciously. Uh, so how can we play with that to have that um, embodied, excited sexuality in the voice instead of a woman stripping on a pole, you know, to her own routine. How do we get the difference between a woman doing something because it is pleasing her, bringing her pleasure, and when is she doing that performatively? Again, super easy hmm. in person. You know, you can watch how she feels in her body versus when she's just going through the motions for show. How do you get that in the voice? So a lot of that was um, a collaboration with the artists. Fantastic. That was great. Thank you, Jamie M. Ray, for a terrific interview and for your terrific work on Hot and Throbbing. And that is it for this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. Thank you to Samantha Cohen from Raphael House, and thank you to Raphael House for all the work that they do. Thank you to the artist formerly and still known as Aunt Proctor. And of course, a thank you to Portland's own Renaissance Woman of the Theater, Jamie M. Ray. And speaking of Renaissance Woman of the Theater, not only did Jamie direct Hot and Throbbing, she's also the line producer for this very podcast. And Robert A.K. Gagno is the sound engineer. Matt Weens is the composer. And in the good parts, anyway, were recorded at Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon. And Studio de Bermea did the rest. All of which exist on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them, and we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Satellite Beyond the Page. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash on air, where you'll find other episodes of Satellite, as well as of our community profile podcast, Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. <laughs>